Welcome! You're listening to audio of Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. At ICC, we are being transformed by Jesus to impact our world. Wherever you are as you listen today, we want you to know that we love and appreciate you. We're so glad you're here. We hope today's message will help you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thanks again for joining us. Well, good morning. I'm, uh, I'm Tom Crocker, one of the pastors here, and it is always a, a privilege to share with you and to just worship with you. Um, we have been spending time asking and responding to tough questions about the church as we focus on what it means to be better together. And uh, these questions that we've been asking have challenged us and have placed in our heart opportunities for letting the Lord Himself speak to us and uh, maybe settle some things in our mind and in our hearts as well to know Him in a little different way. Today, is a heavy question. For today, we're going to look at the issue of um, how do I handle the ugliness I see in the church, even its leaders? I struggle to trust and remain in the church because I have seen and been hurt by sin in others. And the question is, what do I do? What do we do in response to this? In taking a quick glance around the room, I think it's safe to say that since I was in church from conception on, that I have been in church the longest than anybody here. (laughs) But I uh, indeed could say I grew up in church. My parents were missionaries, um, and I was born on the mission field. And then they came to Memphis, and Dad was a pastor and served with pastors in Memphis. And this is where I grew up. Church was like an extended family to me, uh, just being the church. Dad was pastor, but he was dad. And uh, I didn't see anything different from him when he was at church or when he was at home. He was just dad. But then there was the church that I experienced. Now, as I went in my high school years, I, uh, I began to feel the stirring of God that, of, of maybe moving into ministry in the church as a vocation. I didn't necessarily want to feel like I was following in my dad's footsteps, though. And he was good with that. He wanted me to land where I needed to land. So it took a little while to process that. And I kind of came to a place where I decided that, no, that's not what God has called me to do. And I really decided that I wanted to be a dentist, which I think is ironic since I'm in here at a church with so many dental students. I I get reminded of that a little bit. I... uh, 
had made plans, had actually enrolled in school. And uh, on my graduation night, that was my plan from high school. But I also had another more immediate plan upon graduating. That very night, I boarded a Greyhound bus and, and rode 24 hours to, I think it's Fallon, New, uh, no, I don't, I don't even remember the name of the town now. It was in Nebraska. And uh, I was off to see my girlfriend that had moved from Memphis to Nebraska. No, it wasn't Paula. That's a totally different story. <laughs> and some of you are really kind of weirded out that I even drove, rode on a Greyhound bus for 24 hours, I, I imagine, but I did. While I was on that trip, sitting with whoever there was to sit with, depending on how packed the bus was, I was sitting beside this older woman and we got to talking back and forth and she was nice and asking me questions and she said, well, what are you going to do when you, um, for, for vocation? And I said, not necessarily in my distinct voice, but I said, I plan to go into dentistry. She thought I said, I plan to go into ministry. And we spent an hour about what life would be like in the ministry on the bus. I never did correct her. <laughs> the Lord uses people in many different ways and variety of ways. And it was in that conversation that my heart really began to be flipped and turned toward, yeah, maybe the Lord is calling me in a different path. So. I went to school being called to pursue that path that God had called me to. And at the age of 20, as a sophomore in college, I have no idea what was the thought of the church. I got called as a pastor of a church right outside of Union University in Jackson. Drove, it was what they called a halftime church. Now, that didn't mean they were halftime. It means I just went every other Sunday and preached. They didn't have worship. They just had morning Bible study when I wasn't there. So I went every other Sunday, and they were gracious. And I know there's going to be in heaven special awards and rewards for people in those churches that let 20-year-olds come and be their pastor. It was quite a, a, an act of grace on their part. However, I wasn't there much at all. And my first encounter of being the pastor of a church of a funeral was the suicide of one of their men with a family. And I began to navigate that initial introduction to life pain and life loss. I got to know one of the families there real well. And what was interesting, they had a, a son who was just four years younger than me. And, and there I was, their pastor. But they just took me in as a, as a son as well. Because when I would go, I would preach Sunday morning and Sunday night. 
Well, I had to eat somewhere, and they always let me go to different families to eat. That was, that was really good because you got good country eating. <laughs> but this family, I really loved going. They, they traded out, so I didn't get to go to this family all, all that often. But when I did, I loved it because I got to play with Rusty, and I got to ride his motorcycle with him, and we just had a great time. I was just like an older brother. I had left the church. But it wasn't two months after I left because I had graduated from school that I was called back to preach the funeral of Rusty, who was killed in a farm accident. And again, I was immersed into that um, recognition of life loss and life pain. But what I realized and what I discovered is that even in the midst of all that, the church just kept being the church. It just kept being the church. Not really knowing sometimes what to say and do. I mean, how do you respond to things like that? But the church just kept being the church. Now, there, was, there has been in my life and ministry several churches that I've served either as pastor early on or as on staff. As a, as a discipleship pastor. And in those churches, obviously I ran into life's pain and loss, but it was also during that tenure that I ran into ugliness. I ran into things like Will shared, people who I had come alongside of, and both groups of people who I loved dearly, watching one group of people attack another group of people or one person attack another person and undermine their character and just trying to figure out what's going on. How can we do that? Going through times of marital affairs by leaders of the church, Losing good friends in the midst of that. Watching that implosion of family and marriages. When I was visiting, I, I served for a while with Lifeway Christian Resources, and my job was to go visit churches. And I would visit pastors and staff, and too often, it seemed, I would come back to a church to discover the pastor was no longer there because of a moral failure in this life. One church I visited, I had one of the staff people tell me that three pastors in a row had to leave because of those issues and that there were people in that church who had never seen a pastor leave on a positive note. Then there was that time that I found myself having to bring to the authorities information of possible sexual abuse of a couple of young girls in our church resulting eventually in the prison sentence of a key leader in our church. Frankly, uh, this is uh, 
been a challenging time to prepare this message. The topic itself is heavy, but the reliving of experience has been challenging. Even this morning, I realized as we were worshiping, I'm so grateful for the worship and for Will's testimony that I, I, th- I think I have the preparation content-wise, but I hadn't really processed emotionally some of that which I'm about to share or had experienced. And I'm, I'm fully aware of my own heart and the ugliness that I know in my heart that I have to keep before the Lord to let Him call out and transform. Perhaps you've not been affected directly, and thank God that you haven't, by ugliness that can and does happen in the church, even with its leaders. But most of us, all of us, have been shaken by the reality and response and seeing and even being hurt by sin and others. And the question again is, what do I do? How does, how does the church be the church and continue to be the church in response to ugliness? Well, I think what is helpful and what I hope is helpful today is to just go right back to this priestly prayer that Will uh, spoke of and read from. And I want to invite us just to remember a couple of things. And I think those things are found in the heart of Jesus who prayed this prayer in John 17. We'll mention that this was a prayer that Jesus prayed as he was going to the garden before his arrest and eventual death. And in this prayer, it's as if they were, they were just walking across the temple area, having had the time together with one another in this last supper and they're just walking together and he's been talking to them and now he's praying this prayer and the prayer is really has three major components you saw that happen the 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 prayer has where he's praying for himself and embracing who his father is and that they are one and glory his heart to glorify the father and the father to glorify him he's he's just praying that he finish well in the Father. And then he prays for his disciples. A large chunk of that is his disciples that he's just praying for as they're walking together. He's praying for them out loud. And then he jumps to all believers. He expands that prayer for his disciples to include all those who are t- to believe in Jesus Christ. And as he's praying, he's got his eyes on us. We're seen by him in this prayer. But I want to I take us to the simplicity of John 17, 6, that verse. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And I just want to, I want to, I hope, suggest to you what I pray is helpful, that the simplicity of this, ver- of this verse helps us to continue being the church, even when we encounter ugliness in our midst by remembering two things. 
And that is who we are and whose we are. Who we are and whose we are. In John 16a, that very first part, we look at who we are as a people. We see where he says in that, in that first part of the verse, Move on to the next slide. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. There's two very important things there. First of all, we have taken on Christ the very name of God. He has given that to us. And by doing that, he has provided for us the name and character of God. But when we came out of the world, you noticed we came out of the world, we are broken people who live in a broken world. We're just no longer of that world. John 17, 15 through 16, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We still live in a broken world. We still deal with a broken world. But he he prays for our protection from that world as we're in the world. I think Paul provides a very graphic description of this for us. That's very helpful to know what we came out of, what the world still is in its brokenness. And that is, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness, their hardness of heart. They have become callous. And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is the world in which we find ourselves. And I want to point point to uh, this verse where it says callous. That's a horrifying word. It, It is a word that represents a stone harder than marble. That's the representation of the hearts of the world those who are out without Christ. In medical terms, it is that callus that forms when a bone is broken, and it becomes harder than the bone itself. In the broken world, Paul saw three, by the way, that's about the extent of my medical knowledge right there, okay. In, In the broken world, Paul saw three terrible things. He saw hearts so petrified that they were not even aware they were sinning. He saw people dominated by sin, that shame was lost, and decency forgotten. People so much at the mercy of their own desires, they did not care whose life they injured and whose innocence they destroyed, so long as their desires were satisfied. These are the signs of the broken world in which we live. And we need to remember that's who we are 
that we came out of that world. We live in that world. We can be appalled at what the world is like, but we have to remember that is the world. My mom, when she was alive, bless her heart, Anytime she, I'd, I'd go see her, she was just moaning and groaning about everything that was going wrong and every news, news thing that was being heard. And she would just talk about how everything was just so bad and this. And I, after a while, I looked at her and I said, Mom, I, you're, you, you can't get offended. I mean, you can dislike it and be appalled, but she would be personally offended because the world was acting like the world. Now, I did suggest she might not need to watch as much news, but that didn't happen. The world is going to be the world, and we have to remember we live in the world. There is a processing of that petrifying effect that is scary. We need to be alert to this. Even out of the world, we can become vulnerable to this process. And that is, at first, we can be horrified by an act of sin, and we can even then have remorse and regret. But if there's continuation in, the, in that sin, if we just continue on as the world continues on, there is that loss of all sensation leading to those shameful things without any feeling at all. James 1 talks about it this way. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, becomes, brings forth death. Do you see that progression? That is the impact and the effect of the world and the sin that we find ourselves in. But look at what Paul says next. You see that? But that is not the way you learned Christ. That's the world. That's the way it is. That's the way it's impacting. It even will show up in church, and it may show up in an attack. It may show up in a wolf in sheep clothing, but that's not the way we learned Christ. That's not us. That's not what it means to be the church. We are a people of God's name and character. We need to remember who we are. And Paul says to put off your old self and to put off that former way of life so that we can bring on our new self. Um, I think I was supposed to read that. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There has been a great exchange to take place when we take on Christ. That exchange is that we take off like a suit of clothes the old self. I think I have a, a slide here that shows, um, yeah, I keep going, I'm sorry. I, 
uh, one more. Here we go. That, that exchange to put off your old self and to put on the new self. That's what happens when we take on Christ. We become a new identity. We live in a new place. Um, we have made, uh, Matt Chandler likens this into a, a story of his m- making a move from a, one house to the other. And that resonates with me because we've done that. We've, we've like moved from one house to another, was it two miles away? You know, because we, we were in a house that we saw a house that might be a little easier to maintain. Found out later it's got a bigger yard. But anyway, <laughs> buying house, homes for us has been an interesting proposition anyway. I used to travel when I was with Lifeway. I'd go out weeks at a time. And one week I came back home and Paula had in front of me a mortgage that I was supposed to sign and we were going to move into a new house. <laughs> from, from a previous third house that we were living in uh, before I went to Lifeway. That's how we bought that house. I was sitting, in, I was sitting at it for my first time signing the papers. You knew, you knew it was going to be a good house if she loved it. So. But the, the next house, this last house, two miles away, um, I got a phone call instead. And her phone call was, the Lord has revealed something to me. And I thought we were happy at our old house. But she had revealed to her that there's a new house because of a walk that she and her grandson made and came up on a house that was for sale in a neighborhood. And she said, this house will be easier to maintain. And in our season of life, meaning as we get older, it would just be better. Well, now, here's the thing. Anytime the Lord and Paula get together on something, it's a done deal. So we just moved into that house. But here's, here's what happens when you go down this one street where I used to turn, well, for you all, I'll do it this way. When I used to turn left to go to our previous house, now I had to turn right. And... That got a little confusing at times, especially early on when I was preoccupied coming down that street. It's a little embarrassing to turn the way you not and find out I'm not going to my house anymore. I don't live there anymore. I have to make a U-turn and go back. And that's what it was. Every time I had to make a, even a conscious decision, I don't live there anymore. I got to turn and go back. That's what it is when we take on a new identity with Christ. We don't live in the same place. We aren't the same people. But we still have to be intentional about embracing that and recognizing that and living in that new identity in what Matt Chandler calls grace uh, effort, uh, grace-driven effort. We get salvation immediately. We get justification. We're justified before the Lord and we are Adopted as his sons and daughters, and we belong to him, which we'll see in a moment. But we have to still be conscious of this taking off the old self and the new self. We have to be conscious of making the right turn. And then later in that chapter, and I won't read it, he just lists a whole bunch of things that we ought to be taking off. 
we ought to be shedding. Meaning in the church, we should not be doing these things like falsehood, like unchecked and destructive anger, like bitterness and, and, and insulting language, all those things that come from the world. We might bring that in with us and we have to keep shedding that, but we now have in us the Spirit of God working in our lives and enabling us to shed that. We call that sanctification. It's the theological term for that. And Jesus even said in John 17, 18 through 19, I think I have it up there, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now that sanctification is set apart. He has set us apart. And in that setting apart, we are to continue to be taking off the old self, putting on the new self. That's who we are. There's a, there's a phrase that we use sometimes when somebody moves like, like a Will and Ashley to go to another church. If, if they join a church, that church might ask for a letter of recommendation. Our letter of recommendation for them would include a statement kind of like this. They are going in good standing. That's a good phrase. I love that. A good standing. How do we be in good standing as a church member? Well, Matt, an author and pastor, has said something. He, I think, tweeted this out, and I love it. A church member in good standing is not someone who has stopped sinning. You heard Will say, we're not perfect. We bring baggage. We still have battles to fight. But it's someone who has refused to stop repenting. That is a church member in good standing, a Christian in good standing. Here's what I want to say to you. We must be a church in good standing and a church who has refused to stop repenting. This is who we are. Now, when people abuse and misuse their power or influence in the church, they are telling a lie about God. And the voice of the sheep seeing and experience this ugliness that's the prophetic voice to the body saying things are not as they ought to be. And when there is ugliness, we don't hide it or cover it up any more than God hid the ugliness of sin with his only son on the cross. We serve the body best by inviting ugliness into the light. And that's the way we learned Christ. We must remember who we are. But then, quickly, we must remember whose we are. Four times in this chapter of John 17, and in verse 6, twice, the disciples are described as those who've been given to Jesus by the Father. I love that. And in John 17, 20 through 21, we see this extended to us today. For because he said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us here that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see what he's done? He's 
owned us because we belong to him. We be- the Father, because we believe in him, has given us to him. And we are one with him as he is one with the Father. That unity brings us together into the very nature and character of God. And it is because of whose we are. It says if it is in this moment before his death, Jesus pauses to ask his father to bring a supernatural unity to his church. And while the weight of all the world's sin and all of its ugliness is being placed on Jesus' shoulders, our unity is on his mind. So along with receiving a new identity in Christ as salvation, we're also brought into community, real-life community, physical community of brothers and sisters whose identity is found in Christ, and we are one in Christ, and we are one with one another. So Christian unity means caring for each man in our church as we would care for our brother and treating each woman with the respect we would our sister. Paul sums up his counsel to us by telling us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As we are to fully live in our unity with Christ, we do so as one body. We must forgive each other in the same amazing way he has forgiven us. When we let ugliness keep us from him and his body, we're also telling a lie about God. You see, Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but for all those who believe in me through the world, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Yes, we must continue to bring ugliness into the light that it might be known and addressed and we might protect and care well for those who are directly wounded and affected by this ugliness. We must keep being the church who's this Christ. And when we do, we strengthen one another and we do even more. We give expression to the fact that the world may believe who sent us because we're representing the unity of Christ and the Father. Here's what I want us to do today. I want us to pray. This, this is somewhat of a heavy prayer, but I want us to pray in three ways. I want us to pray together. We'll, just, we'll, we'll do that in our huddles as we've done all along and just invite you to do that. But I want you to pray, first of all, that we grow in who we are in Christ and that we consecrate ourselves in the desire and posture of being a people who refuse to stop repenting. Let's remember who we are, that we will refuse to stop repenting. And then in our second prayer, or along with that, another prayer point is pray that as we are one in Christ, to whom we belong, we will be with one another forgiving one another in the same way Christ has forgiven us, strengthening one another, and giving visible expression 
to the way in which Jesus and God are one. In other words, let's remember whose we are as we pray. And then please, if you would, recognize that there are those, and maybe even in this room, who have been personally hurt. You heard Will share his testimony. May we as a church be personally and corporately agents of God for protection of those who are harmed or oppressed. Pray that, that we'll be that kind of church always as we remember who we are and whose we are and living that out. Thank you again for joining us for today's Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis. We want to encourage you to join us in person for worship soon. No podcast can ever replace the good design of God in gathering in person with other believers for worship in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with ICC, you can visit us at iccmemphis.com. As we close, we offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans 15:13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Thanks again for joining us.